In every age, God raises people up to speak the truth to the world in a way that is currently relevant. Though our opinions should not be held with the same esteem as the biblical canon, we still carry the hope of Christ to the world. Our society has forgotten what it means to follow Christ. The bright lights of truth seekers are barely visible in the dim twilight of a post-Judeo-Christian society. We all see the darkness coming. All we can hope is to share the light that he has entrusted to us. This is Modern Apocrypha. Hey, I'm Jared. And I'm Greg. And this is Modern Apocrypha. Welcome. Well, this is episode four. What did you want to make our topic for the day? Well, there are two things that sort of fit together that sort of naturally flow out of what we've talked about so far. Um, one is Gnosticism, and along with that comes the dialectic. And those are those terms... Are... Go ahead. Yeah, those are very old, odd, not English-sounding words. Well, Gnosticism was, a lot of people would think that it was an early Christian heresy, but if you look at what the word means, it, it actually goes back even further than that. The The concept that we're trying to describe is is basically about the oldest thing that we have on record in some sense. And then the dialectic is... Um, I don't remember who it was who coined the that term, but the idea... Gnosticism and the dialectic, are they all generally together as a concept? Well, I mean, realistically, I could talk for four hours on each of them as separate, but in terms of how the world works and what we're, um, what we're looking at when we look at the world they work together so seamlessly that we probably ought to cover them together. And then, you know, as time goes on, we get into more detailed examinations of this or that thing. It will become obvious what's appropriate to hit there. But so let's first, though, let's talk about what they are real quick. The dialectic is just this sort of idea you go from um, what would you say, uh, problem, solution, or, uh, problem, remedy, salute, uh, result, something like that, problem, remedy, result, and then there's, uh, there are formal words to describe it, um, what was it, it was, uh, uh thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and, what this is sort of shorthand for, this is really just shorthand. And what it's being used to describe lately is sort of this thing we've got going on in the world where the enemy, and I mean enemy with a capital E, the spiritual enemies of humanity, have this sort of game they're playing where they have this thing that's coming at you. Like the World Economic Forum, the WEF, is the thesis. They're obvious supervillain, uh, like, in totally insane, megalomaniacal, bent on world domination, bent on a one world government. This is the thesis. They are obviously the bad guys. 
Okay. Then on the other hand, you've got the antithesis, which is what is the solution to the World Economic Forum? And I have one answer. There are a lot of people who would have a different answer. We'll see if I'm right and we'll talk about it later. The Bitcoin actually comes into it. Um, but okay. so you've got the thesis, the antithesis, the answer for the problem, and then the synthesis. And the thing that you have to remember when you're when you're dealing with this, I actually, the way I personally picture it is as a world chessboard. The world, the whole world is a chessboard where you have two sides, the white and the black, and they're both being played by the enemy. So God isn't even playing that game. Instead it's, and, and the reason that that's appropriate is because, well, for example, the WEF genuinely believe that their opponents are conservatives are people who are nationalists people like trump they would think of those people as being their enemies and so when we've seen this whole conflict with donald trump and the left over the past couple of years what i keep thinking is just that we've got this white chessboard being donald trump's side and the black chessboard is the the left and the left side and obviously the black side is evil and obviously the white side is good, but when you actually start looking at what's really going on, none of this accomplishes God's purposes. None of this is aimed in the direction that Christ is going. And so all of it is direct, is essentially being directed by the enemy. And so when you're, when you're analyzing things, I look at the dialectic that way. There's a great example. Let Go ahead. Break in yeah. here. The way you just said that sentence, it almost makes it interchangeable, the dialectic in the Overton window. Okay, the Overton window is controlled by the two sides of the dialectic. The Overton window is, it's like the left thinks that we ought to be talking about these things, and the right thinks we ought to be talking about these things, and the push-pull between the two determines the Overton window. But the Overton window is another great sort of example for the synthesis. So you've got the thesis and the antithesis. Those two things are against each other. And then the, the synthesis is the goal that was intended from the beginning. And the reason this is the case is because humans aren't all that easy to manipulate usually, especially the ones that are like what we would call them the elect. Um, but, but in Revelation, it talks about how the enemies, what the enemy plans is so sneaky, so devious that it could fool, it could almost fool even the elect. Okay. The WEF is not fooling the elect. The WEF are comic book freaking supervillains, and only the crazy people are actually aligned with them, and they aren't very comfortable about it, most of them, right? You forgot the bald cats. Bald cats are totally on their side. Who? The the bald cats. That that just right over my head. What what are you... I'm, I'm making a joke about the uh, evil genius with the cat with no hair. Okay, yeah, well... I mean, that's exactly right. That, yeah. So, but, but the point is, manipulating God's people, manipulating people who are used to the truth and have, an, have a sense of the truth isn't all that easy. So you have to have this sort of two-sided tug of war that brings people into a... 
it brings people into a place where they feel like they have to pick one side or the other, and thus they get distracted from what really matters. So that's kind of the dialectic. Okay, and along with that, you've got Gnosticism. And the reason these things play together, Gnosticism, if you look at the way the word is currently being used, um, there are certain people like James Lindsay, he's a great example, who understand that Gnosticism is, a, is essentially a religion. It's a belief system that underlies some of the things that the enemy is trying to do in the world. And so it has come to be just a shorthand term for the base idea that there is secret knowledge and that as you progress up the, the hierarchy of a particular organization or group that is a secret society, you gain more knowledge. And these are the people who have been sort of behind a lot of the well, it sounds like Scientology. Scientology is actually one outgrowth of Gnosticism in the modern world, but oh, okay. the Masons are another. Um, if you ask me, the Catholic Church is as well. That's a topic that's going to offend a lot of people. I don't mind offending people, but if, I, if we're going to get into that one, I need I need to actually dig into it so that I'm not just making people mad for no reason. But the point is. Gnosticism is this sort of pattern that applies to a lot of different organizations where the higher up you get in the organization, the more valuable you are, the more the the higher in the hierarchy you are. What does hierarchy remind us of? <clears throat> Episode two, look at where hierarchy came from. Hierarchy came from the enemy. The higher in the hierarchy you are, the more in the know you are, the more you get to dictate events and this is sort of the pattern that the enemy uses in uh organizations in our world that he that are that are aligned to him so when you're talking about the dialectic on one side of the dialectic you've got groups like the wef and if you look at who's behind the wef how many how many masons how many masonic high level masons do you think are aligned to the wef and how many do you think are aligned in the other direction who would be considered the good guys it's like um when you look at uh witchcraft you have the the light witches and the dark witches well one side goes toward the uh the black chessboard and the other side goes toward the white chessboard but they're both owned by the enemy neither one of them is actually good they're both part of the enemy's plan for the world. Is that making making sense? It is a bit. Do we have like a red definition, a, a Webster's dictionary for the word Gnosticism? You know, I haven't actually looked it up. Do you want me to? I'm curious. All right. What the? Uh, Hang on. Yeah, the fewest number of English language words to describe the thing would be. Okay, so let's see. Uh, let's see, Merriam-Webster. I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually have to add words here because it's trying to. Okay. So. Huh. You know, the dictionary definition isn't real good, but I bet you we could grab one off Wikipedia if that's good enough. How's that? 
and what the differences might be. Well, the the dictionary definition is about four words long. Um, what, what Wikipedia says it is, is it's a collection of religious ideas and systems that coalesced in the late first century AD among Jewish and early Christian sects. These various groups emphasized personal spiritual knowledge above the proto-Orthodox teachings, traditions, and authority of religious institutions. A Gnostic cosmo cosmogony generally presents a distinction between a supreme hidden god and a malevolent lesser divinity, sometimes associated with the god of the Hebrew Bible, who is responsible for creating the material universe. Consequently, Gnostics considered material existence flawed or evil, and held the principal element of salvation to be direct knowledge of the hidden divinity attained via mystical or historic insight. Many Gnostic texts deal not in concepts of sin and repentance, but illusion and enlightenment. Okay, so does that sort of help at all? It does. <clears throat> so the idea is that if you are a Christian, if you believe that the God of the Bible is God, is the creator, is the originator of everything, then Amen. Gnosticism, well, then Gnosticism is the lie that has been instituted by his enemies to paint him as being somehow lesser than those enemies and to paint the physical as being somehow less than inferior to dirtier than the spiritual that spiritual things are better than physical things and actually this pull this plays into a concept i wanted to talk about at some point and now seems like a fine time if you're up for it um well, certainly so when christians think of heaven their notions have been infected by gnosticism and here's what i mean by that the idea of heaven is that this is this totally spiritual place where we will all go and we will just be happy all the time, right? Okay, that, that's sure. sort of the pattern. What do we see as God's plan actually being for the universe? Because we see something totally different here. When God designed being, when he designed existence, he designed two sets of things. He designed spiritual things, and those spiritual things are higher than the physical things, and maybe that we don't understand exactly what that means, but he never actually said that either. They're just different and not here, or not always present, or something. And then the physical things are the things that we know of this world. And he designed the physical to be sort of like the focal point of a lot of things. It's like, instead of the earth being somehow lesser than spiritual things, he made it good. He said he designed the earth. He, he put all the creatures in it and he said it was good. And when God says something's good, that means it's good in a way that we can't even express. It's so good that it's unfathomable to us in the modern fallen existence how good it is. And that means that physical things were actually designed to be Good. I don't know that you could say they're better than spiritual things, but they're not lesser, they're not worse. They're simply different, and they're intended to be themselves, and they are good for and for what they're for. They're they're not there's nothing wrong with the physical. 
So this idea that when we go to heaven, we're going to be shedding this physical body and going to a place of perfection and paradise is only half right. And here's what I mean by that. May I? Or did you have something you wanted to add there? Okay. I'll, I'll wait. Okay. So Christ did not create heaven to be our eternal home. That's not right. That's not biblical. Instead, this earth is to be redeemed and our currently flawed physical bodies are to be resurrected and we are supposed to be returned to life. We are to be resurrected into life to live on this earth and to do God's will on this earth in incorruptible bodies, in bodies that are not that aren't just going to die someday, where we don't have pain and suffering and death and all the stuff that we've got going on now. That was his original plan, which is why when Christ said to pray, part of his example of how to pray was, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is sort of a thing of, we want this earth to be transformed into what he originally intended it to be, and us to play our proper parts here the way we were supposed to in the first place. It seems to me that there's an extra offshoot here. Mm -hmm. um, at the beginning of the conversation, we tried, or I tried, to um, systematize this, uh, to, to create a math formula, you know, to create a proof. Um, and one of the things that you look at when you're looking at something like that, you know, if I've got one plus one, I can test 10. Does that work? Does three, does that work? 17, does that work? Right? Okay. And if you look at these things and what their output, does it make you, um, I guess some things that I could see that it's done is separate out feeling guilty about wearing a bikini and then not feeling guilty about a bikini and then feeling guilty about cheating on your husband and then not feeling guilty about it. You, you can't equate things so broadly across the board. And so where Gnosticism has said that we're all bad we don't have the capability to be good. That is outputted a, a number of Freudian psychosis. Interesting. I'm not so by its by its fruit you will know it. Okay, okay. I think I see what you're getting at here. Well, you know, I don't I don't exactly know how to how to speak to what you just said because you you know what the Bible says about sort of what you're talking about with the whole um, feeling guilty versus not feeling guilty thing is that before we had the law, we did not know whether there was sin or not sin because we didn't have anything to compare it to. We didn't have any way to decide whether something was sinful or not before the law was there, right? And then once we had the law, we could know whether something was sinful, whether it was good or bad. It's like when God asked Adam and Eve uh, they they had eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they said, oh, we're, we were naked and we were ashamed. He said, how did you know that you were naked? Well, do you think God didn't know 
how they knew? Of course he knew. But he's trying to bring to their attention what they've done. And in this in this case, I would say, when it comes to modern society and when and things like cultural standards, for example, that nakedness is actually something that was designed to be shameful. It was designed to be not the way things were supposed to be. God did that on purpose because he wanted to teach us something. Well, now we've, we live under Christ and the rules we live under are no rules at all. It's a case of we, we live to follow him. And by doing that, we fulfill the rules, but no violation of those rules is going to be held against us because he has carried the penalty for all of that for us. And I would say that the, the external force, there's no law to come and, and put you in behind bars for it. You, you still are custodian over yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I thought you were going somewhere else with that. No, no, not that, not that you don't still sense when you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. Right. It's just that nobody's going to come put a scarlet A on your head. Right. Well, and, and, you know, we could, we could briefly touch a little bit on what I see as being the chief flaw of modern Christianity, which is a, an over fixation on the rules, right? It's like we, we are saved from our sins and then we go right back into trying to please God by following the rules when that's, it's addressed directly in the New Testament. Paul says, oh, you foolish Galatians, what you've begun in the spirit and by faith, are you going to finish it with works under the law? And the idea is that what Christ has done for us is setting us free of the consequences and the results of our evil decisions and... Pardon me. No worries. Anyway, it's setting us free of the consequences and the results of those things so that we can follow Christ without having to worry about them. And by following Christ, we will then fulfill the law that was originally there in the first place. But that that redemption, that, that salvation only takes effect if we accept his gift. If we don't, then we're still left under the old system. Does that make sense? I think it's something that takes a lot of inner searching and paying attention. So it's not something that someone's going to hear in the oh, academic uh, knowledge as opposed to experiential knowledge. Well, you know, there's a reason that Christ taught in parables and he did not teach using sort of the, the academic uh, explanation of things. And there's a reason that the Bible was given to us as a set of stories and a narrative instead of as a, a comprehensive theology book. You know, if God wanted to, he could have sent us a systematic theology. He didn't want to do that. Instead, he sent us a set of narratives. And the reason for that is because humans learn better from story, better from experience than they do from having 
stuff thrown at him, which is actually also the reason that I decided I wanted to write in the first place was because I want to help people to understand these things. I think it's important, and the only effective way I can think of is by writing a story, telling a good story. And I gotta be honest with you, I am not... I don't feel like I'm good at it. I don't feel like I'm... I feel like I can get the lessons, like I understand the lessons that are supposed to be learned, but I don't really feel like I'm a good storyteller. That has never been... That has never been a conceit of mine or a, a part of what I, how I identify myself. It's simply something that I aspire to because I think it's important. So I agree with you, and you're right. You can't, you can't get it as academic knowledge always. But at the same time, being able to spell that out some doesn't hurt. You know, sometimes it's the last thing people need to put the pieces together. So I don't mind saying it either. Indeed. Indeed. I think that's a great place to put a pin on it. Can we take a five-minute break? My alarm is going off. Absolutely. Are we to take a five-minute? Yeah, absolutely. That awesome. means we'll right see you guys in a minute. See you guys in a minute. Modern Apocrypha is brought to you by Energemetra 6 and the new book Bright Star by Jared Michaud, that's me, coming out in April 2024. Uh, if you're interested, head over to e6universe.com to join our book launch team for a free copy or to buy a copy with the promo code ISRAEL for 10% off. Modern Apocrypha is also brought to you by North Arrow Coffee. Now, I don't drink coffee, but North Arrow Coffee is the coffee company that's so good that even those of us who don't drink coffee love it. It's a pro-life coffee company. 15% of every purchase goes toward a pro-life cause. You can see right on their website what those causes are and uh, where they're spending that money. If you use the promo code E6, you get 10% off on your order. And thank you. Now back to our show. And we're back. Welcome back, everyone. So, we sort of stopped in the middle of the discussion there because it was made more sense to have it on the camera than off the camera. So, we did. Where do we want to pick that up? Trying to define Gnosticism, um, I'm going about it as a fruit of its uh, uh, outputs, right? Okay. Looking at the output of the frame of thought okay and symptoms that, that that are giving us that so something that we'd said just a moment ago that somehow gnosticism is explaining that you are the leader because you are meant to be and that describes that you are spiritual and i brought into that sort of a, a mentality a thought process that might makes right makes spirituality Okay. So the fact so, that you've won proves that you were right. Okay. So what I would say is that it, 
Gnosticism would probably say that it transcends the might makes right uh, ethos, but really what it is is it devolves into it. And so, you know how we talked about all evil sort of like circling the drain and becoming a singularity and turning into the same thing? Basically, at some point, all evil turns into might makes right. Because I can, I do. That's, that's basically what all evil turns into. The only way you get out of that is by having some kind of external standard of good and evil that is determined by something outside of yourself. And God is the only thing, the creator is the only thing that humans have that is that sort of standard. So just, what would I say? Just for example... When you look at moral law, the only possible source of moral law is human decision or divine decree. And when you're talking about created beings that are fallen angels, that's the same sort of thing. It's either they decide what's right or God does. And they're just people like us. They just have more abilities and they live much longer currently and you know what i'm saying it's like they're they're not a different kind of entity than we are they're still a person how they're would you approach that God. how would you approach that concept with the redefining of words right i don't see the association Where it cropped up from was you use the word kill. Mm -hmm. And that immediately goes to the Ten Commandments that thou shalt not kill. But it doesn't say thou shalt not kill. It says you shouldn't murder. Right. And that definition, that that word choice for the description of the divine. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, God God sort of laid down those those laws. He, he basically said, you know, if, someone's, if somebody is attacking you and you defend yourself and you kill them, then their blood's on their own head. It's their own fault. They brought it on themselves. So Right, but the idea that the commandment is different from what initially was stated as defending yourself as opposed to seeking out and tyrannizing. I don't see how this relates to... Can you help me out? So where I've got a, uh, a disconnect or a, um, an issue with trying to define Gnosticism or, or mm -hmm. uh, uh, finding bad idea bad, uh, how do you get away from whatever is your last like connection point? I'm bringing it into a modern technology uh, comparison. You can put out everything you want but the last person to interact with your feed can take every one and zero coming through to you, alter it, and have your outputs to you whatever, be whatever they define. So how do you get around? If we're describing something, we're doing it in words mm -hmm. and not allowing your definitions to to point you into an outcome not intended. What's not will the power? 
under somebody's definition. I see. Well, I guess what I would say is just that there isn't one it's just a question of whose definition you're going with and and interestingly enough god has given us all the right to make that definition in a sense it's like the one thing that we have the absolute right to do is to choose what we believe and whether you're in a concentration camp or the nicest uh <laughs> the nicest, most palatial place in the world, you can still choose what you believe about your circumstances. So what is the name of the Russian book of the gentleman that was in uh, the concentration camp in Russia in terrible situations and wrote a uh, famous you mean book of, Is it Schultz? I can't even The Gulag Archipelago? Thank you. Yeah, so it's an it's um, mm -hmm. I started listening I, to that. I, I had trouble with it. I, I, it. It's just so dense and so long. I still would like to finish it at some point, but yeah, it's a slog. But that does give uh, credence to um, our divine right to name things. That we name it in the perspective that... Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we formulate the way reality is perceived for us. Is that what you're saying? That's an interesting statement. Do we, or do we only until we surrender Christ? Well, when you surrender to him or when you choose to put yourself, I mean, we can do that to anyone. We can choose to take someone else's view of reality over our own that's that's our own decision but we still have final say and and that this is actually kind of an important point god gave us final say that is what free will means we can choose what we believe you know i'm gonna go supernatural on this one you know how so i said i said i stand with something mm -hmm. and i didn't say i'm not to stand i was told i'm like oh i hear you and I can't not say that I heard you. I have no choice but to say that I said I heard you. Yeah. Uh, you can ask. You're meant to name everything. If you're unsure, ask. They call that brain. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I, I don't know what to say to that. I mean, yeah, I, I hear you. Huh? Huh. No, I... You know... And there's one of my favorite uh, historical events. Um, there was a great banker, and he was keeping up with the Joneses. He had just as nice a car as everyone else. He had a, a beautiful building. He, he set up his building throughout the nation and, and was the standard. And then he died. And everyone around looked at his books, and he had set aside a path. He had set aside something greater than himself and he himself had very little wealth he had very little to pass down mm -hmm. other than his ideas and his systems that were not for him they were for his people okay and that setting aside 
a mission. You know, there we've had a language for a long time, so you can pick a lot of words for this sort of boss above you. You know, mm -hmm. the one that you follow. Yeah. The principles. The the ideal that you are putting yourself under. Indeed, indeed. And, and so that whenever yeah. you do have a situation in front of you, you know how to align it to both the correct word for the def definition, as well as appropriate lines to put it out into the world, timing, everything is set up for you to succeed. You know, I, what you're what what you're saying calls to my mind is just the fact that when we when we go about things in life, one of the things that is good is finding a responsibility and carrying it. That pleasure, hedonism, whatever, all of that ends in dissatisfaction. It's all sort of temporary and it doesn't it doesn't take us anywhere particularly good it's when we find a mission and a a responsibility to carry that we find something important something meaningful it gives us meaning to do that agreed agreed so um real quick if you don't mind me pulling this back to the dialectic and gnosticism and all um, I would say in summary of the whole Gnosticism thing that the shape of the world, the way it looks to me, the shape of the world is the enemy has control over the, the nations of the world and the, um, oh, the way he exercises it is by putting this Gnosticism, this, these hierarchical organizations that people take part in, into the human world to create this black and white chessboard. Um, and, and that you see it on both sides. You see the hierarchy on the dark side ends up being things like Satanism, things like... Um, Masonry is an example, but it can be either one of those. It can be the white or the dark side of the chessboard or the WEF or the Democrat Party or, you know, whatever the whatever the thing is. And then the white side of the chessboard ends up being the other side. It ends up being the the Catholic Church, the there I go again, the um, the Republican Party, whatever sort of organization you want to name. And that's how all of this sort of Let's take trickles a second. down. Yeah. I'd like to take a second. Yeah. Organizations that might seem less involved, but are incredibly involved. Wikipedia. Sure. Uh, Smithsonian. Okay. So mm. maybe a good way to look at this would be the more secretive the hierarchy is, the more it aligns to a Gnostic ideal. So in the Catholic Church, the heads of certain orders, it's very secret. In the American government, we have very, very top secret things that you're not even allowed to know exist. It has become a Gnostic organization. 
in so yeah some of these things you wouldn't even think of that way like the american government the cia do you really think that the person who is purportedly the head of the cia is the one who's actually making all of the calls about what we do and don't do in certain situations or is he sort of a figurehead you know there's it is pretty commonly acknowledged that when you're talking about the federal reserve we don't know who actually owns it all it's not publicly owned it's privately owned it's a private bank and we don't know who owns it that's a pretty gnostic thing right there it's completely disconnected um almost everybody owns blackrock but who runs it as opposed to well, owning and, it right well and and who runs BlackRock may be even more obvious than the Federal Reserve because we don't know who really runs the Federal Reserve. All we know is that when you get people like Alan Greenspan in there, Greenspan had, by all accounts, I wasn't actually politically aware at the time, but Greenspan had a pretty libertarian take on finances before he became the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. And then after that, he turned into about well, exactly the same talking head the, all the others are. Obviously, somebody else was making those decisions, and he was the one rationalizing things and putting them out there for the public. And I'm, I think there's probably a 99.9% .9 chance that if he deviated, somebody would have taken him out. So There's a lot there. <clears throat> I think that uh, the position that was held was also a figurehead to to make signs to the nations right yeah this is what our organization is telling you we're doing you to uh direct you in a way regardless of what we're actually doing right and and the other thing that we we and this is this is actually why i find conspiracy theories so tricky because it's really hard to know which parts of conspiracy theories are human-driven and which parts are driven by the powers and principalities. And so, for example, when you're talking about somebody like George Bush Jr., the, the you know, not George Sr., but George Jr., he did a pretty good job. He was a pretty good conservative governor of Texas when okay. he was governor of Texas. His record changed dramatically when he became president of the United States. Obviously, something else was pushing his buttons, but exactly whether that was a spiritual or physical or in between some of each, it's really, really hard to say. And I think that's on purpose. Sure, sure. And in, in that particular instance for Bush Sr., yeah. Um, additional forces at play are your own ego, you know, not being supported by who you supported the previous terms, um, trying to feel like you're good and, and get your good things done. How much of it was uh, people leaving you alone and thinking you're safe to do what you want? And then the prior organization coming to co-opt you after you are in power. Yep. They don't even bother until you're already there. 
Well, and, and one of the things we need to get into in one of these episodes real soon is incentives and the system and how little politics actually matters nowadays. That would actually be a really good topic for a podcast very soon. Okay, we can do that one next time. Seems good to me. Because, yeah, I think, I think this sort of, I don't know, what do you think? Do you think this sort of paints the picture when you're talking about a worldview that is a real Christian worldview that acknowledges the powers and principalities as they are, God's actions dealing with the whole of the world and creation, and how that all sort of is starting to trickle down into the physical realm? Do you think this is sort of getting into that? It at least gives some people some definitions to work from. Yeah, fair enough. You know, one of the things I wanted to bring up, and I don't know, maybe this is sort of extraneous now, but it, it really sort of struck me when we were talking about the dialectic. A while back, I, um, I ran into this music video, and at first, I was sort of like, wow this is right on point. I even tweeted it out. And then I'd listened to it and watched it some more. And about the fifth or sixth time I facepalmed and I immediately went and deleted my tweet. And it was because this video is, uh, it's talking about how God come back home, uh, was one of, were some of the words God come back home this whole world is full of liars and abusers. And um, I, I don't, I'm not recommending this music video, but the more I listened to it, the more I went, this is a white side of the chessboard thing. They're saying all the right things, except they're saying them somewhat wrong and it's just off. And in popular culture and, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of contexts, you can look at something and when you, when you're, exercising discernment when you're listening to what the spirit is the holy spirit is telling you you can catch the edge of those things and when you do it's kind of eye-opening for sure the uh thing that strikes me in those things is where you wouldn't say you wouldn't implicate you wouldn't uh disparage uh, those friends of yours that are in the wrong, those uh, yeah. systems that are benefiting benefiting yourself. Mm-hmm. Not do, speaking and acting in accordance with truth, irregardless of yourself in that truth. What about it? Those things will flag me uh, where things it sounds like they're saying everything right yeah and you could say everything right for the wrong ends yeah no um, you're right and and that's often the that's often the way the enemy works when it comes to manipulating people who are generally decent people is they'll say the right things but they'll do it for the wrong ends the best, the best lies are the ones that contain the least amount of manipulation or untruth. No, and, well, and I will say lines. that uh, yeah, go ahead. as much as the, the enemy likes to uh, intimidate, 
the greater the efficiency of effect that seems to be uh, the most favored. If I can change one word at the beginning as opposed to 20 words at the end, they'll, the enemy will look to change the one word to the greatest effect. Yeah. Or the that's one right. definition of a word. Yeah. No, you're right. That's that's absolutely right. And and I actually think that sometimes that's true and other times that's not. It's like the whole global warming thing was based on stuff that wasn't even beginning to be true. It was it was just total fabrication from the very beginning and they just said it loud enough long enough to make it stick where the only evidence they have on their side is the city heat effect. And when you take that out, there's no evidence for it at all. So I actually think that that was fabricated as sort of a dark side of the chessboard move, a move that where they knew that enough people would believe it that they could use it to their ends. Huh? No, no. People believe it because it's true. Nobody wants to tear up the environment. The oh, oh, oh you, mean the, you mean the ethos right, but, behind it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Right, right. The statement is true. We want to save our planet. We want our kids to have a beautiful garden yeah. to raise their kids in. Yeah, that's right. They what do. is environment? Right? What do you mean by environment? Why is right. Roundup trying to kill one of the religious food source plants for another country? It's not a... It can't be defined as a negative plant if it's food, but a negative plant might be one that's negative for the economy. Mm. What about the new economy of the new kind of plant that you want to kill? If you're just uh, sloganing, mm-hmm. if you're just you know sticking to the dogma, these these words keep coming up. Like the what did you call it? The banality of evil. Yeah, mm-hmm. yep. they do the same thing. They do the same thing in the same. That's way. right. But but the whole point that I was trying to make in all of that is just that I think sometimes they invent lies that are further away from the truth to act as a counterforce against the lies that are closer to the truth. To allow for oh, what's the the dialectical manipulation. Correct. The dialectic is the thesis, antithesis, synthesis. It's they invent two lies, one that's very close to the truth and one that's far away from the truth. And because you people tend to believe one or the other, they wind up jumping on one of the bandwagons and the good people jump on the, on the white side of the chessboard bandwagon. And, but the, I think both lies are invented on purpose and that the one that's further away from the truth is actually done on purpose to to create a an obvious synthesis for the antithesis a, to oppose, or an obvious thesis for the antithesis to oppose. I've heard it said a number of times as something that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, in current news, the number of bodies that are dying in a war, they have a name for it. Like, because you killed a certain number of people here, what's the correct number or the correct response? There's a word for this... Um, appropriate response, but that's not oh, the proportionality. Word. Proportionality. Mm-hmm. Proportionality is a lie when it comes to God. There's a truth. <laughs> There's not proportional truth. There's truth. A hundred percent. Amen. Yes. So, is that what dialectic is? Is proportional 
response. It's it's not about a proportional response. Proportional just means proportional just means something that is corresponding to something else um, in an in an appropriately equal fashion. Where I don't know as far as as far as I, I don't think proportionality would be. A, I think using it that way would be sort of murdering English. No, no, no. But, that's an ex, that's an example of a. Uh, trying oh. to frame the conversation okay, yeah. around, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and no, your your basis for conversation is wrong. It's not about killing people or not killing people. It's about stopping an idea, or or stopping someone from killing you. No, no, no. It's about stopping an idea. If you have the idea that, no, I don't want to condemn anybody, but certainly loving death, you know, sacrificing your children. The, yeah. The... Yeah. Yeah. Stop. Okay. Yeah. I see what you're saying. And yes, that's right. But in Israel's in Israel's um, case, stop stopping someone from hurting them means opposing that idea. Opposing the idea is part of the self defense. It's not just. It's not just about stopping a bad idea. That bad idea. Bad ideas are everywhere, and bad ideas are not your business unless they're attacking you. Fair enough. And I would even say that's not exactly on point because we're instructed to go out to the people and, and be shepherds. So hopefully speak up. Don't be violent. We'll right. find your idiocy and help you learn. Right. Well, and, and okay, so here's here's a case of good proportionality. A proportional response to a bad idea that isn't trying to kill you is a good idea. Good ideas in a in a world where truth is held as being important good ideas are always going to win because the bad ideas are obviously worse in a world where uh, someone is trying to kill you a proportional response is if you have to you kill them first i mean you know so proportionality is just a correct response to whatever's coming at you and usually in the west up until recently, at least, what has come at us is bad ideas. And a lot of times we've been failing to respond to them appropriately. So, you know, all I can say is this conversation between us and making it public is a great example of a proportional response to the bad ideas that are so prevalent out in the culture, whether it's in a, quote, Christian context or in a conservative context or on the dark side of the chessboard on on the evil side of the chessboard those ideas are even worse but all the bad ideas that take you away from christ are still bad ideas that take you away from christ and a proportional response on our part isn't to go kill all those people who believe those things it's to put out better ideas unless they come try to kill us My mind flows from that. I, I, I completely agree with what you've said. Just fighting back against the uh, putting all the good you can into the world and finding it hit a uh, blockage where your your post isn't viewed or not viewed, but uh, not presented. Well, and certainly, what it, occurs to me is you. Uh, not killing someone could flow very well to not censoring someone. And I don't want to say that words are violence or anything weird like that. 
You you don't want to do violence to the language? Sorry, I I couldn't help myself. Yeah. But spiritually, the the action can be the same, right? Cutting out uh, discussion, right? Honest discussion, questions. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we're we're right right about it where the, we need to be uh, calling it here. Anything, any final words, anything else you want to add to that? Cause this is actually a good place to call it. I would just say that, uh, well, mighty in the image of God, we're made protect us from our own ego and don't shut out conversation and, and continuing to look for your own blindness. Yeah. Well, and, and, have conversations where people are open to conversations and where they are consumed by their own blindness. Stop wasting your time. That's pearls before swine. I had, I had an example of that yesterday where I made a post trying to be helpful on something and somebody accused me of mansplaining. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, so I can put this, well, I can put this person down. Well, I, my Mary, my wife suggested just say you're welcome. She thanked me for mansplaining, and I, she just said say you're welcome. And I said, mm, I don't know. And I thought about I thought about actually putting her in her place as she deserved in a way that was appropriate and couldn't really be. And and I could have done it, but my personal motivations weren't good. I was not in a good place. I was not doing it out of love. I was doing it out of anger. And so I just deleted my response and walked away. But the point is when somebody is so blind and so attached to and attracted to their own blindness that they don't want to have a conversation, there isn't much you can do there. That's I find myself hmm. in that situation quite a lot um, if we get comments on these things. How many people out there write a message, rethink it, and then completely delete it and walk away. I find myself in that situation, you know, hot-headed, jumping yep. into something, and yeah. going, whoa, that's well, not me. And, you know, for me, if somebody wants to have a conversation, if they want to talk about something, I am 100% there. I want to have that conversation. But when it's somebody who has an agenda that wants me to think they're right, I don't care. I don't want anything to do with that. Go away. Even if their point is zero point. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So be kind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, be kind and, and be interested in truth and be interested in having a conversation about things and achieving understanding rather than being right. And maybe that's a good place to call it. Indeed. Until All next right. time. Well, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next thanks, time. Guys.